Amen. There's no other name on earth or in heaven by which man might be saved. So we are grateful to praise that wonderful name today, Jesus. I was speaking with Quinn Allison just a little bit ago, and um, she set me straight. I thought that I had solved California's problem with drought. Uh, we had rain this morning. You know why? I thought it was because I washed my car yesterday. For literally the first time in like four months, my car was caked with dirt, and I was like, I got to get out there and do it. It's like 100 degrees in the house anyway. I might as well go out and at least get sprayed with the hose. I washed my car, and of course it rains this morning, but she told me it was because she prayed, and I think that's a better, I think that's a better explanation in my book that she prayed that the Lord would bring rain. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing us rain. <laughs> we need that as a people. It's been very, very dry. And so uh, it's such a fantastic display of God's power when you get to hear that thunder rolling, when you get to know that nobody else could produce that kind of power and that no strike of lightning ever hits the ground except that the Lord God directs it and guides it and instructs it to do what it is supposed to do. We serve a God who is in control, and we're so very grateful to worship him today. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 1. Today we're going to be studying verses 20 through 25. But I want to begin by talking about a man in the testimony of Scripture who was very, very intelligent. He was a, a Pharisee, actually. His name was Nicodemus, and we read about him in John 3. Uh, the Gospel of John talks about how this man of great learning, of wisdom, came to Jesus, and he came to him at night. Why did he come to him at night? Probably because he was a Pharisee, and his fellow Pharisees at that time were beginning to grow opposed to the teachings and actions of Jesus Christ. This man was bold. This man spoke like nobody else spoke. And so Jesus was, in many of the eyes of the Pharisees, a threat to them. They were the people that were seen as the most holy of the time. They were kind of the, the, the high watermark of spirituality. And so when Jesus comes and he begins to speak with power, and he begins to show signs and wonders that testify that he is of God, then many of the Pharisees were beginning to grow threatened by that and began to grumble against him and to even oppose him in public. And so Nicodemus, this man of great learning, comes to Jesus, and I kind of imagine he says it quietly, Jesus, I, I think you really are the Messiah. I think that you may be the one sent of God. And so Jesus is listening to what he has to say, and he responds in a very interesting way. Nicodemus reveals that he's interested in heaven, and he wants to know what, what it takes to get there. And Jesus says, a man cannot experience heaven unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. And to Nicodemus, this man of great intellect and reason, this man who knew the law, it was baffling to him to hear those words. And in fact, he reveals how confused he was. He says, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and come out again? He was completely perplexed by the gospel. And so Jesus says some more things to him. And Nicodemus does not walk away from that conversation with all of his questions answered. He does not walk away with a great sense of clarity. He walks away with much to ponder and think about because Jesus has spoken to him of things that are beyond his intellect, that are beyond his reason. And so we're going to speak today about wisdom and about how there are different kinds of wisdom and the worldly wisdom that dominates the intellectual landscape 
of America today is actually a weak wisdom. And the Apostle Paul is going to explain why and how we need to deal with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so we're going to read verses 20 through 25 and study them together this morning. Where, are the, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Would you join us for a moment as we pray together and thank the Lord for blessing us with this wonderful word. Lord God, what a humbling task it is as a finite man with a finite mind to come into this pulpit today and to speak to your beloved about infinite things, to try to communicate the word which will never pass away to them in a way that gives you honor and glory. I pray that you would, in whatever way necessary, cause me to decrease so that you, Jesus, might increase in the preaching of this word. I pray that nothing will be uttered in this place today that does not conform to your word, Lord, help us to see that your wisdom is in every way superior to ours. Please use your Holy Spirit to, to do more than teach, but to actually soften our hearts today, Lord God, so we can receive what it is you have to tell us. And Lord God, may we revel in the greatness of your amazing and unmatched mind. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But Lord God, we are so grateful that you allow us a glimpse, that you draw us near so that we might experience how great you truly are and that what might be known of you, Lord God, might be shown to us, not by our reason and thinking and logic, but, but through your revelation. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, the living word that we pray. Amen. Our passage begins this morning with a description of kinds of people who make up the intellectual heavyweights of society, particularly in Paul's day. He says, where is the one who is wise? In other words, he's talking about the one who has learned much, the one who has experienced great schooling, who has been under great minds, the one who understands, who has great comprehension, the one who can grasp grand topics and ideas and handle them in his mind. He speaks again and says, where is the scribe? The scribe is the one who remembers much, the one who understands the details of what has been learned before. He is the one who records and keeps in order the wisdoms of men. And where is the debater of this age, asks Paul. The debater is the one who not only understands the wisdom of the world, but then communicates that world in effective and persuasive ways to others. This is the one who is great at rhetoric, as we spoke about last week. Where are these individuals? Where are these kinds of people who are intelligent and rational and well-spoken? I can tell you where they are not. They are very typically not in Christ. Think about that for a moment. If you were to analyze all the Christians in the world and seek to find the kinds of traits 
or characteristics that are most common among them, that they most commonly possess, that tend to correlate with faith in God, you would probably be surprised to find that while there are definitely believers who are sharp and observant and have great comprehension, that there are many, many who are not exceptional of mind, who would not be considered the tops of their class. What Paul intends to help us see here is this group, in this group of verses is that there is no advantage when it comes to the things of eternity, the things that really matter. There is no advantage to having a sharp mind if it rests atop a dark heart. In fact, there are noticeable hurdles in the worldly wise that God must overcome by grace if those intelligent, logical, reasonable people are to even begin to understand who God is and how we as human beings can know Him. Roy Chiampa, um, a really good commentator on the book of 1 Corinthians, says, Ironically, those who think they are in the know may miss out on the truth in matters theological and ethical where knowing is less a matter of intellect than of a humble character and pure motives. Worldly wisdom can accomplish much, but it does not have the capacity to bring someone to God. Of course, wisdom itself is undeniably a good thing. And if you've read the Word of God at all, you probably have seen many verses that would testify to that truth. The Word of God that we are studying today is full of wisdom. And it is, as Proverbs 3, verses 13 through 15 say, is something that we should be pursuing. The, 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 the one who wrote the, the Proverbs, Solomon, writes, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we recently spent a long time in, spoke much of human wisdom. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, it says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So wisdom is far preferable to folly and ignorance. It is something that man desperately needs, and it should not be neglected by anyone who cares to live well. True wisdom affirms what God has revealed to man. True wisdom affirms what God has revealed to man. But there is a difference between the wisdom that God supplies for us and man's personal evaluations of the world and his own opinions of what reality is. What makes worldly wisdom different from godly wisdom? Everything that man has comes from God. We, we would know nothing if God had not created us with the capacity to think. And all of creation that God has made, of all of it, mankind has a greater capacity to understand. We have a greater potential to know, to think through problems, to conceptualize, to analyze. But when we speak of worldly wisdom, we are speaking specifically of the deductions that man has come to apart from the guidance and revelation of the Holy God. When sin first cast its dark shadow on God's creation, worldly wisdom was born. Adam and Eve were created in perfect fellowship and dependence with God. They were greatly free. 
but they were not without some limits. God had instructed them, look at all that I have made for you, behold it, enjoy it, have dominion over it, be blessed by this creation. But as God, I have the right to tell you, there is one tree that you may not eat of it. And it is that tree that is in the center of the garden, right next to the tree of life. It is the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were, in some ways, limited by law. They were also limited because they were not God. God had made them very reasonable creatures, creatures that could understand, creatures that could know, but only God is omniscient. Only God has power over space and time. Only God knows all things. Everything that man knows, he must learn, he must receive. So this one tree in the middle of the garden was off limits to man. Death was promised as a negative consequence. If man was to eat from that tree, they would die and they would be separated from the God that they had come to love and trust. This God who had been so generous to them and had provided all that they needed in the garden and had given them life, they would be separated from him if they ate. And we're familiar with the story. Having been convinced by the crafty rhetoric of the serpent, he was a good speaker, wasn't he? Adam and Eve believed that there was more to be had in disobeying God than in trusting him. And so they took of that fruit and they ate. And while it tasted good, it satisfied some base sense in them. It marked the beginning of man's journey to redefine what is right. And what a crooked and broken journey that journey has been. From that point on, man naturally repels the wisdom of God in exchange for what he can gather with his own intellect and understanding. And so, worldly wisdom is man's attempt to understand life and God without God's help. This is not only a failed endeavor from the start, friends. It is also a very dangerous practice. And we will see why shortly. What happens when man endeavors to seek God on his own apart from the wisdom of God? What happens when he tries to understand the cosmos without God's guidance? Well, first of all, I, I want to say this. What happens when man tries to understand God apart from God? First of all, he doesn't. He doesn't try to understand God apart from God. When man turns his back on the wisdom of God, the pursuit of the true God is no longer something that he desires. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did they do? They clothed themselves immediately. They covered up who they were. They wanted to be separate from God because being in the presence of true wisdom revealed their foolishness. They hid from Him in the garden, didn't they? They were compelled to go away from God. So man who seeks God according to worldly wisdom, that's almost an oxymoron. Man doesn't seek the true God according to worldly wisdom. His sinfulness prevents him from doing so. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. This is speaking of the condition of humanity right now. Verse 11, no one understands. And furthermore, no one seeks for God. No one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Have you considered that, friends? That in our lost state, we are not truly pining for God. Unless the Lord does a mighty work in the lost heart and the lost mind of the sinner, 
There is no hope that he will somehow grasp the grandeur, the beauty, and the reality of living God. Now, to be sure, sinful man does seek something. You might push back and say, well, man, God is, man is seeking God all the time. Man's not seeking the true God on his own. Apart from the regeneration of the Spirit, sinful man commits himself to a life independent of the true God, who reigns and rules, and who is in no way subordinate to that which he has created. In fact, sinful man seeks to run from the living God and to redefine God according to his own desires, so he tries to run to a different thing that he will call God. We know that thing to be an idol, and it can take on a hundred different forms, a thousand different forms. There is no limit to man's creativity in creating false and empty gods. And so man creates his own God and worships a creation rather than the creator. Part of seeking the true God is seeking the wisdom of that true God. We cannot attain to that which we will not acknowledge we need. So that is the first problem with this idea of what happens when man seeks God apart from God's guidance. He doesn't really seek God. He seeks something other than that God. But secondly, even if there was a sincere desire for man to seek the Lord on his own, there would not be the ability. There would not be the ability to comprehend what God truly is. You know, when man decides what he wants to believe or think, he often makes a list for himself, doesn't he? We sometimes call that a cost-benefit analysis. We think about what's going to cost for us to do a certain thing or to engage in a certain behavior or, or to hold to a certain standard. And if it's not worth the cost, if there aren't benefits that outweigh it, we don't do it. That's what man calls logic in many, in many instances. Because man is in Adam, the first man who sinned, and because we have inherited his sinful tendency in nature, a fundamental decision has already been made which undermines our ability to know God. Man starts off with the assumption that he exists apart from God, that he is self-existent, and not because God has willed him or is sustaining him. Man plugs his ears and closes his eyes and tries to pretend that he exists and maybe there is a God, but he's somewhere, somewhere else in the universe not messing with me, doing his own thing, and so I am right now independent of him, and so I've got to figure out this life that I lead. That is the mindset of fallen man. We want to see our minds and our lives as our own, as not belonging to God, as not subject to him. If the natural man were to see God, seek God out, everything we learned of him, would, would insist, we would insist on conforming to our own opinions of him. We would interpret it all through the selfish lens of what we want God to be. Our pride in desiring to be free of God has crippled our capacity to understand who He really is. 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 14 says this really succinctly. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And what happened to Adam and all who descend from him in the garden when he betrayed God and broke his law, he became spiritually dead. Does man need a better education to know God? Does the natural man need some kind of experience to see God? No. Though alive in the sense that he has a body, 
that breathes air and a heart that pumps blood and even a mind that reasons and thinks. Nevertheless, the natural man is spiritually dead, according to God's word. He lacks the particular vitality that, of heart that comes from being reconciled and dependent upon God, the giver and the sustainer of life. And therefore, a lost man must be, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Born again if he hopes to attain to God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, Paul is describing to the Ephesian church there the darkness of being separated from God, that before we knew God, before he brought us to himself, we were following in the pattern of a broken world that wants to worship anything but God, and in doing so, without even knowing it, is trying to glorify Satan, the enemy of God. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. A lost man is a spiritually dead man. So he must be born again if he hopes to attain to God. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, this regeneration brings with it not only a new vitality, but also a God-given capacity to understand the things of God. That is why each time we come to the pulpit and preach the Word of God, we take some time to pray and ask that the Lord would help this not be gibberish to us because the Word of God is discerned by the helpful Spirit of God. That helper that God has given to us opens our eyes and dispels our blindness so that we can enjoy the things of the Word and know them and bring them to heart and live according to them. We don't do that perfectly, do we? You know, I'm, I'm the first to admit that there are things about God's law which still remain mysterious to me, that God has not chosen to reveal in absolute detail to me yet. But we do this with a continual reliance upon the Creator. By faith, we can trust Him to help us know Him. The presupposition is overcome. This false lens that we used to view God with is shattered by the Spirit. And we're given new eyes by which we can see God in truth. Isn't that a beautiful gift that God renders to His people? And so natural man, church, must get beyond what his mind can fathom in order to see God for who He is. It must be more than what you can conjure up in here. It must be beyond it. Are you beginning to see how the intellectual man will struggle to see the point of the gospel? They cannot factor that which is divine into their mathematical equations about whether God can be true or not. It's beyond them. May we rejoice in the intelligent believers that God does choose to give to the church. May we, may we rejoice that God gives some intelligent, some thoughtful, some, some analytical minds that have really blessed the body of Christ. He does give us some sharp Christians. But they are not a blessing to us because of their worldly cleverness. They are a blessing to us because of the spiritual gifts of wisdom and knowledge that God has bestowed upon them. The driving principles of the gospel are offensive to our natural logic. We recoil from them in Adam, but in Christ they are like medicine to our heart. The last part of verse 20 reveals that God has had an active hand in making the wisdom of man look foolish. God has humiliated, in a sense, the, the foolish 
thing that man calls wisdom. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The Apostle Paul writes. Now this is the second time that Paul has described God's hostility towards worldly wisdom. Recall the 19th verse, which we studied last week. It says, For it is written, he was quoting there the Psalms, or Isaiah rather, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God's not talking about good godly wisdom there. He's talking about thwarting their worldly wisdom, this wisdom that they have tried to conjure up apart from the guiding hand of God. So why would God treat the wisdom of man as if it is his enemy? Isn't man just doing his best? Why would God be so hostile to this worldly wisdom? The reason is because man's wisdom is not only inferior to God's wisdom, it is dangerous, friends. Divorced from the wise counsel of God, the wisdom of man in Adam thought it better to follow the lie of the serpent, a created being, rather than trust the words of the God who is life-giving and who had sustained every second of their being. Man's wisdom is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. And if we put our greatest trust in human wisdom, then we are guaranteeing that we are never going to attain to heavenly things. Human wisdom is dangerous in that regard. And I'll acknowledge right now that I'll bet there are some intellectual people who had heard that and said, that's why I can never trust Christianity because Christianity does not exalt logic to the highest platform because Christianity offends my wisdom and I only trust my wisdom. If I can't understand it and if I can't analyze it and break it down into its parts and categorize it the way that it makes sense to me, there is no way I'm going to buy into it. And in many things in life, that is a good strategy. There's a lot of false junk out there that God has given you an intellect so that you might discern and be wary of it. But when it comes to things that are beyond the earth and beyond the human mind, we have to come to the end of our logic and realize that there is something greater than it. That we cannot trust it above the logic of God because our logic is fundamentally weak compared to what God brings to the table. So if you're going to know him, he has got to help you know him. You can't get there by yourself. Man's wisdom is a deviation from the perfect wisdom of God. It is not the same as God's wisdom, right? And what is God's wisdom? God's wisdom is perfect. God himself is perfect. So if our wisdom is any way different from God's wisdom, then it is not an improvement on God's wisdom. It is not an equivalent to God's wisdom. It is a downgrade from God's wisdom. Therefore, since man's wisdom cannot help but be different than God's perfect wisdom, it must be an enemy to the truth. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me for a moment. Open your Bibles up. In this first chapter of Romans, Paul elaborates how man, through his own wisdom, cannot come to a proper understanding of who God is. And we're going to see just some of the ways that the Scripture affirms itself here. In Romans chapter 1, we get a wonderful, although humbling, declaration of what has happened with the world and with the humans in it since Adam's fall. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. In other words, they are working against what is good and real. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and, that things, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Those who want to walk in worldly wisdom are not, they don't have an excuse to say that God has not revealed himself because there is enough of God's image in what he has made for us to see that though we don't understand him apart from his guidance, that he's there, that he is real, that this world we live in is too delicate and intricate and too coordinated to be an accident. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here the wrath of God is again identified. What is God's wrath directed at in this first chapter of Romans? It is directed specifically at all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. According to Paul, what do men do with that unrighteousness and ungodliness? They use it to suppress the truth. They assault the wisdom of God with the inferior wisdom of man. Worldly wisdom cannot really understand God, but what little it can know has been revealed to all men, not just saved men, but to all men, to the lost and the saved alike. And this means that no one has an excuse. They, they can no longer claim that God has not shown them enough for them to see that there is a God. He is worthy of honor, and we know that by looking at what he has made by speaking the universe into existence. But instead of acknowledging God and attributing Him honor by trusting that superior wisdom, man has corrupted their thinking and their hearts have become darkened as a result of that. And what this means is that the natural mind of man, there is a suppression of truth and an intentional ignorance of God's greater wisdom. The results in a despicable exchange where in, on an intellectual level, Man being unwilling to yield to God's superior intellect, unwilling to humble himself and embrace God's leadership and authority, man exchanges the worship of the true God for the worship of anything other than the true God. For anything other that might appeal to him more. They worship the creator, or the created rather than the creator. So let's think about some ways then, friends, that the natural man seeks to understand God apart from the special revelation that God uses to reveal himself to his elect. How does he do that? He does it by pursuing things like philosophy. Philosophy is not letting God reveal himself to us and then working through what he has revealed. Philosophy is instead speculating on what might be based on what we have come to know. It's taking all the data that we have collected, although it is not all that much compared to what there is to be known. And I think some people would recoil at that fact. But in reality, if we're honest, there is much more to know in the universe than we have even begun to know. If we take all the little details that we have gathered and cataloged and written down, and we try to put that into some kind of a system that explains everything that we don't know yet, you've just described philosophy. And that is one of the ways that man tries to attain to God, and they do it largely apart from God's guidance. Now, there are Christian philosophers I'm not saying that all philosophy is pointless, but a Christian philosopher is going to try to make sense of the world and they're going to allow what God has revealed to speak to that and to impact that much more than the thoughts and the theories 
of their fellow human beings. Man has also tried to deal with this idea of attaining to God on his own through speculations. And that is not just taking what you've known and trying to make sense of it, but just imagining, just creatively thinking up things that might be, even if there's no basic reason to believe those things. Regardless of what man currently knows, he's always speculating about what might be better, what system might improve things, how life might be made good here on earth, and why we might have purpose through a man-made device or system. And he also attains to God, and we kind of spoke about this a little bit already, through idolatries. Philosophies, speculations, and idolatries. In other words, by creating smaller gods that are more manageable for the human mind, which is so limited, and then trying to give honor and glory to that created thing, which in a, in a roundabout way, do you know what that does? That glorifies the one who made the thing, right? If you are praising the thing that was made and you're the one who made it, who are you truly worshiping? You're truly worshiping yourself. And so when we create idols and set them up and we give them praise, we're not only stealing praise from God, we're trying to keep it upon our own self. These are the ways of the worldly wisdom that we've been describing to you. Compare that to what John 14, 6 says. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Any hope we have of approaching God must be through the means which he himself has provided for us. Since man is incapable of knowing God through worldly wisdom, God is pleased to deliver his message through a means that is very contrary to what seems wise to natural man, through the foolishness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The natural lost man, dead in his sin, is not concerned with what pleases God, but he should be. His, his, he should be because God is love, God is truth. God is the epitome of all things that humankind really likes to exalt and glory in. From God flows every noble and praiseworthy thing. It is actually in our best interest to conform our desires to match what is pleasing to God. We see in many critical places in Scripture this idea that it pleases God to do certain things. It pleased God, uh, by the way, to acknowledge the Son at His baptism. He said, Here is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It pleased God to give the, uh, the kingdom to his flock. To those whom he has saved, he has given the inheritance of the kingdom. And there is dominion there again, like we heard about in the garden. He is pleased to reveal his son to Paul, who was an enemy to the church, who was a Pharisee, but whom God would eventually use to be commissioned to reach the Gentile nations. It was pleasing to God to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, in Colossians 1.19. That pleased God to have Jesus take on a human flesh, but that all of the divinity of God would, would dwell in that human flesh and be expressed through it. It pleased God to predestine the elect for adoption through Jesus Christ, to choose to save many sinners who did not deserve salvation. It pleased God to set them aside so that he might glorify himself in that group. It pleased God to make known the mystery of his will purposed in Christ, Ephesians 1.9. And here, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it pleased God to preach the good news through the foolishness of the gospel. It pleased God and it glorified Him to make the means of salvation something that only God Himself could give and which man apart from God could never fully understand. We come to Him strictly on His own terms. 
or we do not come to God at all. So worldly wisdom in searching for God is looking for the wrong things or it's looking for good things but in the wrong proportions and for the wrong reasons. And we see that as the passage develops. Here Paul divides the lost world into two segments. Divides them into the Jews and to the Greeks. And we know that there's more to the world than this but he's using this as a as a, a way to help us to understand two of the primary ways that people are trying to invent God for themselves. Here the culture is not as important as the general approach that each of these cultures takes in trying to know God. So we see that first, Jews demand signs. In other words, those who are from the Israelite background, they will not believe in a Messiah and a chosen one, and a holy one sent of God, apart from the supernatural phenomenon that marks something to be powerfully sent by God. They are looking for the power of Yahweh. And they should, shouldn't they? They should be looking for that power. There's nothing wrong with that. They should have been looking for evidence that this truly was one of God. There's nothing wrong with them desiring that, except that when they actually did see those signs, so many of them refused to conform their theories of God to what he was revealing that he wanted for them. Jesus' earthly ministry was not without signs, was it? He was born of a virgin. No one else can claim that. He was heralded by angels when he entered into this world in a humble way. He turned water into wine. He fed the multitudes with just a couple of loaves of bread and a, and a few small fish. He healed the sick of diseases that doctors could not heal. He washed away the, the dirt that he had put on the eyes of the blind and suddenly they could see. He even healed those who were dead and in the grave. He refuted every theological attack that was brought against him. He walked upon water and he calmed the storms with his words. He withered the fig tree at, at, at a word. And of course, after suffering for the sins of the people, he rose himself from the dead. From, for some... Seeing those miraculous signs were accompanied by an even greater miracle. Something happened within them. God did the miracle of turning their hard heart of stone into a heart softened by the Spirit of God, a heart of flesh. The miracle of regeneration happened, and each one of those signs strengthened the testimony and the belief in those individuals that Jesus Christ truly was the one sent of God. But to so many more, the very sign they claimed they needed was immediately explained away or dismissed or replaced with a demand for an even greater sign. Seeing these things with their own worldly wisdom, so many of the Jews would not be able to truly see the power of what Jesus has come to do. How many of you have heard of Justin Martyr? Raise your hand if you've heard that name before. He is one of the uh, church fathers. He lived very early in the process of the early church developing from about 100 A.D. to 165 A.D. He lived in the, the region of Ephesus. And he had originally, as you know, a Greek man, had nothing to do with Christ. He was pursuing philosophy. He wanted to, to get to the limits of this worldly wisdom. He wanted to see what man could know with this mind. But eventually he began to hear the gospel. And in comparison to the things that he had been learning uh, from other sages and wise people in the Greek culture, Jesus stood apart. And God did something in, Jesus's, in Justin's heart to make him see that he needed to abandon that philo philosophy that he sought before and seek Jesus. 
He began to see God as the ultimate object of all human thinking. He didn't abandon logic and reason itself, but he now began to see it through the lens of Christ. He became one of the very earliest apologists, writing detailed defenses of the faith, particularly engaging head-on some of the earliest heresies that arose in the church. In Justin Martyr's um, written word, Dialogue with Trypho, it is a piece that we have saved in antiquity, Justin is attempting to convince a rabbi. He's writing a letter to him. This rabbi is named Trypho. He wants to show him that Jesus is the Messiah that Trypho has been waiting for. The text that he uses to try to convince him is Daniel 7. And so he writes uh, in depth about Daniel 7 and how it points to Jesus Christ. Trypho responds to him in this correspondence. And he says, Sir, these and such like passages of Scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this... Your so-called Christ is without glory and honor, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. You might remember that in the Old Testament it says, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. So you can see a sense for how some of those, though they were raised in the Jewish wisdom, the, the things that God had revealed, even they could not see Christ for who he was because of the hardness of their heart. They had, in worldly wisdom, imagined a Messiah who would come and establish an earthly kingdom and would repel this Roman Empire which had so encroached upon the Holy Land of God. They imagined a mighty warrior, a general over armies, one who would, who would reign upon a throne, a physical throne here on earth. And so when Jesus comes and he's of lowly birth, and when Jesus comes and he is not a man of great wealth, and when Jesus comes and he, he preaches with words, but he does not command armies, when Jesus comes and he subjects himself to the judgments of the world and is accused of sin and does not defend himself, when Jesus comes and he is whipped and persecuted and punished like a criminal, when he takes the sin of the world upon his shoulders and is crushed for it, they couldn't see past their earthly conception of what a Messiah must be. That to them was not a Messiah. And so, so many in Israel have said, no thank you, we'll keep waiting. We want a powerful Messiah. Because their worldly wisdom could not see the wisdom of what Christ was doing for them. For them. To the Jew, the promise of a Messiah would bring power and dominion and victory. God brought power, dominion and victory but they could not see it because they were not leaning upon the wisdom of God, but were instead seeing a Messiah through worldly wisdom. Jews demand a sign. They require a powerful display of God's divinity. Greeks, on the other hand, they seek something different. They seek wisdom. Those who had a more Greek mindset were seeking to find a God who was compatible with their intellectual achievements, one that matched their worldly wisdom. And so commentator Brian Rosner says, wisdom at this point in the letter is a pejorative form or a pejorative term for human rational inquiry enlisted in the pursuit of success and superiority. In other words, when he says that the Greeks seek wisdom, again, they're not seeking the wisdom of God. They're seeking something that affirms their wisdom, something that furthers their wisdom, but they're not seeking the wisdom of God. The proclamation of the cross bursts these human pretensions, says Rosner. 
This attitude, which is so common among the Greek thinkers, essentially said, prove to me, but do it according to my earthly standards and in a way that fulfills my worldly expectations. Can we see the arrogance in that, friends? That we would say, okay, God, I'll hear you out. Maybe this is the Messiah you have sent. I'll be the judge of that. What evidence do you have to present to me? I will preside over this historical event and tell you whether that is enough to save my heart. Each of these approaches reveal the backward attitude of man who thinks himself to be wise. Jews demand this of God, or they will not believe in him. Greeks seek wisdom, assuming they will know it when they see it. Both put man in the seat of judgment over God. God must, to their eyes and minds, prove his reality and worth to them by their standards. For man will decide for himself if this God is worth following. Every man will decide he's not, according to worldly wisdom. What a blasphemous way to approach the holy God. And so this gospel which God has given to us doesn't bring a mighty, conquering warrior to blast the other nations and to reestablish earthly Jerusalem. It brings a man of humility, a man who was clothed in meekness, who was willing to serve the lowliest, a man who associated with the base of the world, God brings to them a man who is so counterintuitive to their idea of what greatness would be that they look right past him. This man is, in fact, a stumbling stone. This gospel is a stumbling stone to what man thinks God has to do to save him. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, earthly wisdom is going to trip over this all day long. But those who through a changed heart given to them by God can say amen. They will not be put to shame. Jesus Christ is therefore this cornerstone, not just a stumbling stone of offense. He is actually the perfect stone, the one that the builders rejected has been made what? The chief cornerstone of all that God is doing to redeem his people. 1 Peter 2, 6-8 through 8 proclaims this, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. What is the word? It is God's wisdom revealed to our shallow minds, as they were destined to do. So there's so much great irony in the cross. God has given Jews and Greeks neither signs, power, or wisdom. And at the same time, he's given them both. In greater measure than they could ever imagine, the cross shines through as the superior power and the superior wisdom that man could never attain to. So friends, we conclude with this declaration. Chapter 1, verse 25. Worldly wisdom is weak, right? God has supplied a superior wisdom to those whom he has called himself. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And this in no way is conceding that God is foolishness. It's not saying that he is any way weak. But it is saying that what appears to the intellectual worldly man as foolishness and weakness is in reality far beyond the greatest Thing that man's wisdom and intellect could ever attain to. And this Jesus who has given his life to be crushed for us and has risen victorious on the third day just as he said he would do, 
became a curse for the redeemed, but defeated death and took away its sting forever. The world sees that as weakness. It sees it as shame. But what Christ did there was a display of power so complete and so comprehensive that it changes the lives of all to whom God draws to it. Let us rejoice, my friends, that Christ does not need to work in the channels of human wisdom, that he does not have to lower himself to to make all of what he does match up with what we expect him to do. But instead he says, come and see what is glorious and good. To those whom he has called, we will rejoice and say, amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon your people, that you have made us yours and brought us near to you. It's such a humbling reality, one that we could hardly fathom. And there are days, Lord God, when we remember just how great you are and it can take our breath away. I felt that this morning as I was awake early going over this sermon, preparing for my brothers and sisters whom I love. And I heard a deep rumbling from the skies. And I went to the windows and I saw the lightning striking so close to my house. And I thought, this is nothing compared to the power of my God. You are so good, Lord. You are so greater than we can even imagine Far be it from us that we would try to fit you into our preconceived notions of what God must be. Help us to trust you. Help us to see the evidence that you are a God to be trusted, but you are also a good and a loving God. And everything that you have done should encourage us to have great faith and confidence in you instead of ourselves. What does man accomplish? We accomplish recklessness and chaos and division. But what does God accomplish? You accomplish, Lord God, unity in the Spirit redemption, reconciliation to you. You bring us into your family. You make us yours. So we love you, Lord God, and thank you for all that you accomplish and do. May you continue to bring many into your family, Lord. Save the loss and glorify yourself in doing it. Thank you for giving us the mind of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.